You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 83, Leviticus 23 through 25. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's a scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hi, Mike. How you doing this week? Very good. Very good. Three chapters today. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. You know, three is in Trey, so that's always a good number. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we're almost out of Leviticus. Just, you know, these three and then uh, I guess the final final couple chapters coming up soon here. Yeah. And then we'll have another Q&A after that. So at least yeah. we're trying to catch up with your Q&A questions. And I guess, Mike, I'm going to go ahead and just ask now call for questions. If you have any questions that are specific to Leviticus, please go ahead and email me at treystrickland at gmail.com. You can get that email on our nakedbiblepodcast.com website and email me any specific Leviticus questions you have. That way, when we do our Q&A after Leviticus, we'll have some hopefully relevant questions. Uh, you don't have to wait as long because I know we still got a big queue of questions and we're getting to them, but maybe I can sprinkle some more relevant questions to Leviticus in the in that Q&A. Yeah, people just uh, don't want to let Leviticus go. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is your chance, you know, keep it going. All right, well let's jump in here. Uh we're going to cover Leviticus 23, 24 and 25 and as you might imagine based on our past patterning and also the fact that I've grouped these, we're going to pick something in each chapter and sort of camp on it for a little while again things that that are interesting. Uh just a quick overview though. Leviticus 23 is basically a chapter that gives readers a calendar of the annual feasts of Israel that were, you know, celebrated in biblical times. It includes the Sabbath even though the Sabbath is you know, isn't really uh, a calendrical festival because it's weekly, but uh, the chapter does include that. This chapter, though, is going to there's going to be some differences here uh, between Leviticus 23 and other chapters in the Torah that talk about you know the annual calendar and the feasts and festivals. And so we'll we'll say something about that uh, when we get there. Leviticus 24 uh, again is sort of a little little collection of laws again, but there are some things to notice here about. Uh, lamps in the sanctuary, the the so-called showbread, the bread of the presence, you know, how that's arranged in the sanctuary. And then, you know, there's some laws about blasphemy and other crimes. So we'll we'll pick a few things there to talk about. And then Leviticus 25 is the major chapter in the Torah about uh, the land, specifically land tenure, uh, rights of landowners, uh, the whole uh, issue of uh, indebtedness, and even more specifically, the system of indenture. That was where a person who had serious debt to repay the debt, they would give the, the, the person owed uh, the debt their labor. Uh, and then, of course, there's the the whole issue of the cycle of sabbatical years and then the jubilee system. That, that's all in Leviticus 25. So we want to, again, camp a few places there too. So let's jump into Leviticus 23. Again, it is a calendar of annual festivals. There are others in the Torah. There's, you'll, you'll see some of this kind of material in Exodus and Deuteronomy as well. And 
when you compare Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus here in chapter 23, you will get some divergences in the way the annual feasts and festivals are described. They're actually sort of three systems. This is the way scholars would look at this whole situation. The scholars would talk about there being three systems, one in Exodus, one in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus 23, to sort of outline the festal calendar and these these events, these these feasts and festivals that were observed. And the reason for their differences would be that they derive from or reflect three different contexts or times in which the material was actually written down. So you can already tell that the issue with the feasts and festivals and the fact that when they're discussed in the Torah that, that they don't always agree, that this is, again, sort of a sub- category, a sub-item to the whole issue of mosaic authorship. Because if, if it was all written at one time by one person, why in the world would you have these differences? And it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. And, you know, listeners to Naked Bible and readers of the blog know that I don't, while I don't buy into the typical, you know, JEDP documentary hypothesis, again, I, th I think that's based a lot on circular reasoning. So while I don't buy that, I also don't buy this notion that Moses wrote every word of the Torah uh, or even, you know, the, the, the lion's share of it. I don't, I don't see any reason to reject uh, Mosaic input, whether that meant him telling somebody to write something or him contributing something and then it was accrued later. I'm, I'm what used to be called a classic supplementarian when it comes to what's in the Torah. But we, what we're going to talk about here is sort of a classic illustration of why uh, the question even comes up. It doesn't question, it doesn't come up because, oh, there's lots of evil people out there, you know, critics that just hate the Torah. Well, yeah, you know, in the 19th century, you had some of those. They were driven by anti-Semitism and other forces. But there are actually things in the text that create the question. So in Exodus 23, for instance, verses 12 through 19, that passage talks about the Sabbath, the three pilgrimage festivals, namely the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of the Harvest, or the Spring, and the Feast of Ingathering. It's very straightforward. Deuteronomy 16, the first 17 verses in that chapter talk about Passover. So, you know, not the Sabbath. And it talks about the Festival of Weeks in the late spring and the Festival of Booths in the autumns. And you might wonder, well, what happened to the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Again, that gets lumped in uh, with the Passover. Okay, and, and that this is between the three passages, it's going to be one of the differences. What about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Is it part of or ancillary to the Passover? You know, six of one, half a dozen of another. But it's just the, the, the point is that the, it's discussed in different ways. Now, when you get to Leviticus 23, and the, in Numbers, I should mention Numbers 28 and 29, that's also part of this picture, but specifically in Levit Leviticus 23, where we're at today. That passage, that chapter details the festivals throughout the year. So it's a bit more comprehensive. It, it sort of gets pride of place when it comes to this kind of thing. So it talks about the Sabbath in verse 3. If we read that, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work, so on and so forth. Then in verses 5 through 8, we read about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then in verses 9 through 22, we get offerings from the new grain crop. And that's sort of new material compared to the other passages in the Torah, uh, specifically the, the, the grain crop uh, during a seven-week period. They were, you know, observing that, counting it, doing it. Then in verses 23 through 25, we have a note about the first day of the seventh month being a day of commemoration. That's when they blew the shofar. Again, that's not in the other ones, the other passages. And then following that, verses 26 through 32, we get the 10th 
day of the seventh month, which is the day of atonement. And then finally, verses 33 to 36 and on, on to the end, we get the festival of booths, okay, which we're told began on the 15th day of the seven months. So again, it's a little more comprehensive. Now, I don't want to get bogged down into sources and all this kind of stuff. When was this and that written? I, what I want to focus on here are a few things uh, about the Sabbath, about the work language, and then I'm going to read you something from a Levine about, again, how the three passages considered in tandem, how scholars have looked at them and why it's an important thing to think about, uh, at least in terms of, of authorship. So let's go back to verse three. We have a very simple comment. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day uh, is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Now it's interesting the word work here is melaka. Now that derives from the same root that the word malak, angel or messenger, comes from. Uh, and both of them in turn have a, have a verbal root, laak, which means to send or dispatch. And that makes sense because a malak is a messenger. Okay. Now you say, you might think, well, what is there a relationship here? We have laak, the verb to send. We have malak, the noun, the sent one, the messenger. And what about malaka translated as work? What, what does that mean? Well, the way scholars look at the relationship between these three terms that again share, you know, these verb, these consonant roots, the lama, the aleph, and the kaf, is basically that melakha here in this passage on the Sabbath refers to assigned tasks, things that you were sent by your master, by your employer, if using today's language, things that you're sent out to do. These are things that are assigned by someone else for you to do. And again, that, that's if we go back to Malak, that, that's what a messenger does. A messenger is a subordinate position and does what they're told to do. So what? why am I bringing it up? Well, I'm bringing it up because the main object of the Sabbath law then here in Leviticus 23 is to avoid doing certain daily tasks that are normally assigned for you to do on the Sabbath. In other words, it doesn't preclude doing tasks that sort of arise from the occasion. And this is why, if you remember when Jesus talks about the Sabbath, you know, he gives these examples, you know, when he's criticized, you know, for the Pharisees want to say, oh, you're working on the Sabbath, you know, because you're plucking grain because you're hungry or something like that, you and your disciples. And Jesus gives the example of, well, what, you know, what happens if a, a, a man's donkey falls into a pit? You just leave it there? You know, no, you, you, you go get it out for him. You go help him. That wasn't a normal assigned task. It was just a, something that arose from the situation, and the good thing to do for your neighbor is to help them out, even though it required physical exertion. So the Sabbath law isn't about avoiding all physical you know, exertion, at least in the Torah. Now, Pharisaic law and the, the, the fence laws that were added to you know, Torah laws, it, it, it becomes that legalistic. But here we have, even in this term, melacha, because of the, the verbal root from which it derives, it really refers to things that you're assigned to do, again, with, with regularity, according to, again, whatever the pecking order is, you know, whatever, whoever has authority over you. Those are the things you avoid. And that's going to be, be an issue because in Leviticus, that language is going to tip us off to something a little bit I think different from other portions of the Torah when it comes to talking about the Sabbath. Now, we typically, I've, I've heard a number of evangelicals that, that, that will say something like this, that the Sabbath is what it is because the Sabbath is sort of built off of or references the creation week. Now, that's true, okay, because we have, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you have God working on six days and he rests on the seventh. 
But it's not true that every place the Sabbath is talked about, that the creation week is in view. And this instance right here in Leviticus 23 is one of those. Now, if you go to Exodus and you're talking about the Sabbath, you can make that argument. You know, don't work because in six days the Lord, you know, made heaven and earth and all that sort of stuff. But here, you're to abstain from assigned tasks. And what scholars have, have gleaned from this, what they've observed here, is that the wording, there's no reference to the creation. In Leviticus 23, what it's about here, what the, what frames the Sabbath discussion here is deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, uh, that, that you're, you no longer have to every day do these, uh, these tasks that were assigned to you by your taskmasters, by your overlords. You don't need to do that. You've been liberated. You're, you're God's people now. Uh, and so it, there's a different rationale that lays behind the the wording here about the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest is the expression of liberation or freedom from bondage. It's it's not referring back to the creation week. So again, even though that makes sense, even though that's true in certain contexts, it's not true to say that all of the Sabbath language has the creation week in mind. And I bring that up in turn, because lots of people will say, well, you, you have to affirm a, 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 a literal seven-day, 24-hour solar day creation week, uh, or else you're somehow denying the Sabbath. Well, that, that just says too much. That, that overstates the data, uh, as, as we would say in academic discussion. It, it's a claim that overreaches what you can really say, and frankly, what, what really is in the Torah about the Sabbath. It, it isn't that simple. So I, I wanted to, to point that out. The other thing about the Sabbath I should comment on is that to this point in scholarship, there's really no ancient Near Eastern parallel that makes sense to the Sabbath, to the one in seven principle, or again, this this weekly day of rest idea. Now, scholars have tried to link it to the uh, the Mesopotamian shapatu. Again, there's it's very very similar in terms of the wording, which was a a special day. Uh, but the problem is, you know, even though this was a special day and, and it involved you know sort of a change in routine, shapatu in Mesopotamia was associated with phases of the moon, and phases of the moon are not weekly. So it messes up the the analogy. Uh, the biblical Sabbath has nothing to do with the lunar cycle. You know, it's a one in seven principle. So the division of time into regular periods of seven that end in a Sabbath day cannot be aligned to a system of lunar months. You know, so so the, the Mesopotamian counterpart here, the Shapatu, really, you know, hasn't worked and, and scholars have for obvious reasons, not been satisfied with it. So it, apparently, the Sabbath is an original Israelite institution. It's something that that's different. Thought I would mention that because I do get that question from time to time. You know, where'd the Sabbath come from? So it it appears to be an original Israelite idea. And what's really kind of interesting there is if it is linked to the deliverance of bondage from Egypt, you actually have both things going on. They could say, well, let, you know, you know what what's the pattern here you know that we, we don't we don't have to conform now to to having our our regular work schedule and all that sort of thing and then they could think about the creation idea depending on, on again when the specific creation account was written that's in genesis 1 a lot of people would put that late uh, in israelite history genesis 1 through 11 because genesis 1 through 11 has very very obvious mesopotamian backstories to to all of it whether it's creation, whether it's the flood, whether it's the Nephilim with the Apkalu, if you've read the Unseen Realm, you know about that now, Tower of Babel, all this sort of stuff. 
all of these things have Mesopotamian touch points. And at the Exodus, Mesopotamia is not the context. Egypt is the context. So we, we could even have the creation week specifically laid out later. And maybe it's reverse. Maybe, maybe the creation week is actually designed to be an analogy to the Sabbath idea. You know, it's a chicken or egg kind of thing, but you could have the, the whole process reversed. Again, things just aren't that simple. So we, we need to avoid simplistic arguments to prop up a particular view of creation or mosaic authorship or whatever. When you actually get into the text, it, it, it's, it's often just not that neat. Now, in regard to the annual festivals, I want to quote something from Levine here. He has a nice summary of you know, the differences between the three, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, and sort of how that has provoked discussion about when these things were, were written. And it, on, on one level, it, it doesn't matter when they were written, again, unless you're married to a, a very arcane view of Mosaic authorship. Hebrew Torah Moshe, the law of Moses, does not have to mean the law that originated with Moses. I've said this before, both on the blog and in the podcast. It's a simple construct relationship. The meaning of the Hebrew could just mean the Torah that is associated with Moses. Okay, or the, the the Torah that you know, yeah, you could have originated with Moses, or the, the the Torah that has you know is associated with Moses because he's a central character, the central character. It can mean any of these things. It doesn't have to mean authorship, point of origin. Uh, it, it might, but it might not. So again, we need to get away from these simplistic sorts of ideas uh, because when you actually dig down in the text, there are things that just mess it up. And here we go. Levine writes this. He says the three annual festivals are called Chag in Hebrew, which means pilgrimage, in the earliest laws of the Torah, which are preserved in Exodus 23. This meant that an Israelite wishing to celebrate the festival, whatever festival it was, was obliged to undertake a pilgrimage. That's why they were called Chag, pilgrimages. The Israelite was obliged to undertake a pilgrimage to you know, a cult center or to a temple or you know, some sacred spot. According to the early law of Exodus 20, 24, God could be worshipped at any properly constructed altar at which worship is conducted in the correct manner. There were cultic centers throughout the land of Israel suitable for such festival celebrations. So you had to, this is me now, you had to migrate if you were in Israel. You had to go to one of these places and observe the festival. Again, pretty simple. Deuteronomy 12 and 16, back to Levine, invalidate this pattern. All sacrifices, including, of course, those for festival celebrations, were to be carried out at one unique central temple in both of those passages, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 16. In practical terms, this meant that the duty of pilgrimage could no longer be fulfilled at local or regional shrines or cult centers, but exclusively at the central temple. This restriction altered the character of the annual festivals in basic ways, affecting their scheduling, their duration, and the manner in which they were observed. The most thorny problem created by Deuteronomy's restriction of sacrificial worship to one central temple concerned the Passover offering and the Matzot festival, the the Unleavened Bread Festival. The Passover sacrifice could no longer be offered near one's home. If you remember back in Exodus, that's you, you could do it in your house. Not only rescheduling, but restructuring the entire celebration was called for. Israelites would have to arrive at the religious capital before the eve of the Matzot festival and then remain there, in most cases until the seventh day of the festival when the pilgrimage was celebrated. They might not have time to get home and back in a period of six or seven days. It was therefore ordained in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8, that the Passover sacrifice be offered later in the evening, in the evening when the sun sets, is the wording. In this way, the Passover sacrifice could also serve as the sacrifice for the first day 
of the Matzot festival. This explains why, according to Deuteronomy 16.8, Matzot must be eaten for six days, not for seven, as it was in the earlier laws. The Passover sacrifice counted as part of the pilgrimage, which now occurred on the first, not the seventh day of the festival, thus leaving only six remaining days. The morning after the Passover sacrifice, an Israelite returned, quote, to his tent, unquote. He was required to eat matzot until the seventh day of the festival and to observe the seventh day as an atzeret, which means concluding assembly a day on which labor was forbidden. This atzeret was a remembrance of the Chag, again the the pilgrimage, that had formerly occurred on that day. The Holiness Code, which includes Leviticus 23, accepts Deuteronomy's seven-week postponement of the Spring Pilgrimage Festival. Therefore, in Leviticus 23.15 and following, we get a restatement of the duty to count seven weeks here calculated from the offering of the first sheaf of grain. Consonant with the emphasis on the, of the Holiness Code on the importance of the Sabbath, even sabbatical weeks, weeks ending on the Sabbath, are to be counted in this cycle. This postponement is understandable only as a response to Deuteronomy's deferral of the Spring Harvest Festival. And finally, Levine concludes this way. He says, actually, Leviticus 23 has only two pilgrimage festivals instead of three, Matzot and Sukkot, that's the the, the booths. The Chag, the pilgrimage called Shavuot, weeks, in Deuteronomy 16.10, was henceforth to be celebrated in the sanctuary and in the Israelite settlements. The quotation is, from your settlements uh, in there in Deuteronomy 16.10. Loaves of leavened bread made of semolina wheat flour, solet in Hebrew, were delivered to the sanctuary and there offered to God. In Leviticus 23.15, the Spring Harvest Festival is not designated as a Chag because there was no pilgrimage. Now that's, again, a summary of some of the issues that you get, some of the differences you get in the festival calendar and also the way that the three feasts and festivals were conducted and celebrated when you compare Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus 23. And again, this is just one example of why Again, if this was all written by one person at one time in one historical context, why does this happen? I mean, it, it, it creates enormous confusion if the same, if, if all of this content is written to a people living at the same time and in the same circumstance prior to going into the land where eventually you're going to have a central sacrifice location. You're going to eventually have a temple. Remember, Moses isn't allowed to go into the land. Uh, he never gets there, and, and there, there is no formal, you know, place like this. Prior to that time, as you know, we just read, there were sacred spots, uh, according to you know those who worshipped Yahweh, that you could go and celebrate these things. And in, in the Passover, in, in in that case, you could do it in your house, at least back in Exodus, but you couldn't in these other passages. So you know, they reflect different times, different historical circumstances, and. It, you know, some people say, well, those are, those are like prophecies. Those are just looking forward, you know, to the time and, and whatnot. Again, there, there are plenty of people out there who just aren't satisfied with that because they're not worded as prophecies. And this gives rise to the whole question of, well, maybe some of these things were written at a different time by a different prophetic figure other than Moses. And it just reflects Israel sort of where they're at at that particular time. They're in the land. Okay. They, the spot at which the temple is going to be built or has been built is already there. 
And so we need to change these things. We need to make the dwelling place of God now the central focus, you know, to these things and whatnot. Different times, different places, you know, different seasons, different, you know, occasions. But I just wanted to throw that in again because it, it's something that we can look at Leviticus 23 and it's material that actually produces something to think about when it comes to, again, how we, how we view Torah, how we view scripture. Leviticus 24, let's jump into that. I want to say something about the the rows, uh, the arrangement of the bread of the presence. Uh, let me just read here. In uh, Let's just, just start in verse 1, Leviticus 24, and I'll read through the first eight or nine verses. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony... In the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Again, we talked before about how this is going to denote that the presence of God is always there. Again, this 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 eternal light kind of thing. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Just a few observations. Now, again, when it comes to the the description of actually eating, uh, we just read that this is for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place. But yet, uh, again, you've got, you know, this, this thing about the Lord's food offerings, a holy portion of the Lord's food offerings. The food offerings are, of course, discussed much earlier in Leviticus. Uh, here you have, again, bread that is part of what, what the priests are going to be allowed to eat. Uh, the frankincense that was mentioned uh, was something that would have been uh, burned when the priest removed the bread each Sabbath, you know, when it's time to dispose of the rest of it. Uh, the loaves, of course, are a presentation to God. Again, you know, we, we have frankincense, we've got loaves, we've got it positioned right where God is. The bread was supposed, you know, in one sense viewed by God. So, you know, you, you put it right there, quote, before the Lord so God can see it. And by that means, uh, the assumption is, and again, if nothing bizarre happens, the assumption is correct that, that God accepts the, the the bread offering here the uh, the bread is an offering uh, subsequently the loaves get a portion of the priest and the, the whole the whole picture here is that it it, it kind of mimes what happened in, in earlier sacrifices that were that were blood sacrifices uh, because the frankincense gets burned near the loaves of bread and, and so God is and it's right in front of right in front of God you know right before the Lord where, where where the divine presence is and so God is sort of pictured as when the incense is being burned and going up the, the picture is that God is sort of smelling the aroma of the frankincense and that that sort of becomes an offering by fire even though the bread isn't consumed but the bread is going to go, you know, to, to Aaron and the priest and, and, and whatnot. So again, there's, there's this, there's a sort of a rationale that goes with it, the, the way things are arranged, you know, the, the eternal light and all that sort of stuff. It's consistent with earlier sacrifices. Again, the picture of God inside his house, enjoying again, in this case, a, a bread offering, the bread of the presence. I want to read something else here um, about the, uh, 
Well, we have we have the the, the logic here. The rest of Leviticus twenty four uh, again, as I alluded to earlier, is, is an assortment of laws, and some of these are about uh, blasphemy, cursing, and there, there's an issue of the severity of the penalties. You know, some of these merit the death penalty and whatnot. So I want to mention get into that a little bit, but as part of this, um, I want to read you. We'll, we'll go with Leviticus twenty four. Uh, well, well, we'll we'll go to verse ten. We might as well just jump in where we left off here. We have here, so you go from the bread of the presence, and now we get, you know, against just some laws, which which seem really, it's kind of an odd place to put a few laws, but I think we'll we'll see the connection here in a moment. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made, should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp, the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Again, two issues here. One is the severity of the penalty and and whatnot. But did you notice? Did you notice the interchange between the name and some of these other designations of God? Again, if you've read Unseen Realm or if you're familiar with, with my content, the name Hashem is another way of referring to God himself. And that becomes important when you get to Exodus 23, verses 20 through 23, about the angel of the Lord, in whom is the name. You have a second Yahweh figure because Yahweh actually is in this angel who is who appears as a human being in human form uh, elsewhere, in, 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 not in, only in the Exodus uh the wilderness wanderings, but other other passages as well. I'll read it again. I'll read these parts again. Look at look at what's done with the language here. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. Okay, and then in verse fifteen, the, you know this is God speaking. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, "Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin." Well, I, I thought he I thought he blasphemed and cursed the name. Well, he did. That's the same as blaspheming and cursing God. Verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. God, the name of the Lord, and the name are used interchangeably in this passage. The name is God. The name is the presence of God. This is the presence, i.e. essence of God. This is not, you know, some sort of convenient abstraction to avoid talking about God, even though it it, it becomes a, a technique later on to avoid saying the divine name. Be that as it may, you're still talking about God. And, and in biblical material, biblical theology, Hashem, the name, is God. And again, that that's going to take you into what we talked about in Unseen Realm and, and on the blog as well about the two Yahweh's idea, that uh, Yahweh could be the same, yet two different entities, different places, sometimes in the same scene, sometimes distinguished, sometimes not, sometimes it's blurred. Here you have another passage. Again, I don't I don't reference this in the Unseen Realm, but here you have another passage where that's very clear. Now, what about the, the harsh punishment? Uh, I, this is something I more or less just want you to be aware of. Uh, the 
there's always there's been a long-standing controversy, and it, it started with the rabbis, so rabbinic literature, about whether the language of such passages like this, uh, even though this one seems pretty clear, but other eye for eye passages, the Latin for that is lex talionis. You know, you you your your punishment is commensurate with with the crime; it it matches the crime. This eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, kind of kind of thing that you read about elsewhere in the Torah. But the debate is that many rabbis thought, and of course still think, that the original intent of the Torah was not to carry the literalism of a death penalty offense like this to extremes. In other words, when you, when you, uh, let, let's, let's say that again, taking some of the eye for eye language, you know, when you, when you injured someone, a fellow Israelite and they lost an eye, many rabbis taught, well, that the punishment for that wasn't to lose your own eye, but you had to give compensation in some way. In other words, the point of rab the rabbis would say the point of most of these laws, not all of them, but the point of most of these laws was not to inflict the same injury on the offender, but to allow and substitute some form of compensation. Now, murder is an obvious exception. You have passages like Numbers thirty-five, thirty-one. It says, "Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall be put to death." In other words, there's no substitute to, to happen here. You can't ransom. You can't. You know, the Hebrew might be better to, to render as redeem. You can't buy him out of this situation. You can't offer anything in, in terms of a ransom or a substitute for this person. He will lose his life because he committed a willful act of homicide. So murder, again, is a very clear exception to this. But there are other things that make you wonder. For instance, let's read Leviticus 24, 17 through 22. Okay, this is right after you know the, the blasphemer being put to death. We read this. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. It's very consistent with Numbers 35. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Okay, the phrase make it good and put to death are two different phrases in Hebrew. So people have seized upon that and, and all the way back to the rabbis and said, well, no, wait a minute. If, if we have an animal life and that, does it really mean that whoever takes an animal's life then loses their own life? Are animals and humans on the same level here? You know, it says whoever kills an animal in verse 21 shall, quote, make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. So obviously that verse, verse 21, sort of makes us think about the wording of the previous three verses. Maybe it's not this match for match kind of thing, because it doesn't end with an exact match for you know, the, the, the crime committed. Maybe make it good should apply to all of these things, except where the, the Old Testament clearly offers, or clearly demands an exception, like in the case of murder, or 17 and back to Numbers 35, 31. And so th this became a, a, a huge debate. Uh, in the Talmud, you'll read, look, if, if you look at this language here, and again, it does, they, they would say it, it doesn't make sense, and the Torah does not require, because of the, the difference in wording, make it good versus put to death. Uh, in verse 21, it, it doesn't make any sense to have a matching eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth penalty in a number of these laws. Compensation, you, know, you, you, you make up for the loss, you make it good in some way. 
that that is the point of the Torah. And so, because of the, the language here in Leviticus 24, that, again, has a ripple effect uh, elsewhere in the Torah when you get this sort of language. And so, many rabbis argue that the, the, the Torah doesn't really intend this literal corresponding mutilation or maybe even always loss of life, you know, premeditated murder might be an exception, but what about other cases? You know, that, that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe the whole idea is compensation here. Maybe that's the bigger picture as opposed to, again, taking the thing literally. And that's really the debate. Other than premeditated murder, many of the rabbis said, look, we can't take this literally because of verse 21 here. And, and this isn't the only verse, but this is a good place to bring it up because we're here in Leviticus 24. Maybe the idea, again, is some sort of compensation and not inflicting the same sort of injury, the same mutilation, that sort of thing. Now, Levine notes here, I'll just read a, a brief statement of his. He says, compensation is a very ancient alternative to mutilation in other Near Eastern law. For example, the Code of Hammurabi ordains bodily mutilation in some cases and legislates compensation in others. The Code of Eshnuna frequently allows for compensation in cases of bodily injury. Same is true in Hittite law. Same is true in you know Middle Assyrian laws. So he, he has, uh, again, a panoply of examples here. And he says, oftentimes the criterion for what you do, mutilation versus compensation, is social status. Injuries inflicted on slaves seldom require retaliatory punishment because they're lesser in social social class. Doesn't mean they're they're not it doesn't mean we look at these passages and say, oh well, you know, not every person is a human being. Let's talk about abortion now. I mean that that's a misapplication of this sort of language. They they don't you know they, they don't they're not thinking from a scientific worldview or is this a human person or not or all this all this kind of stuff that we talk about today. It's strictly social status. And we can look at that and sort of find that repugnant. Okay, that's their culture. It is what it, you know, it is what it was. But Levine's point is that, you know, you see this operating in other law codes. Maybe, maybe this is what's going on in, in the Torah as well, at least in certain circumstances. So he has, he adds a form of stratification also figures in biblical law. Exodus 21, 26 through 27, uh, is ex- his example. I'll read that. It says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So, there's some compensation. The, the the person who did this doesn't have their eye plucked out, doesn't have their tooth knocked out. Again, it's not it's not a mutilation for mutilation scenario. The penalty incurred by the, the inflictor was he had to let his slave go. It was a form of compensation. So again, I just want to give you a flavor for we do have language in the Torah that again raises this question and, and it naturally raises another question in turn. Well, how how did they know and how do we know? You know, how do we know how to interpret what's going on here? You know, how did, how did they make these decisions? About the safest thing you could say is that, you know, the reality is that, that Old Testament, the Old Testament punishment system really did both. It recognizes both courses of action. There is death penalty and a life for life. There, there may be, you know, mutilation for mutilation in, in, in some passage, but it also recognizes compensation instead. Uh, it's not strict in that regard. It employs both kinds of punishment uh, selectively. And it, it really, it's a case-by-case basis. It's therefore reasonable, again, to think that maybe something like intentionality 
factored into this. In other words, let's say, let's take a, a case where a, a, one Israelite deliberately maimed another Israelite, deliberately took something maybe and, and poked out an eye or something, you know, an anger and a fight or something. Well, if, if deliberate intent was discerned, chances are, and the, and the Torah would allow them to return the mutilation. It also allowed them to insist upon some other compensation to the, to the person harmed. So if there wasn't intent, Again, that's a different story. So the, the Torah is actually going to do both. You're going to see examples of both. So the next time you, you hear, you know, some critic or some, I would call them dishonest atheist or somebody like that, you know, wanting to, to, to throw this at you, like, you know, you worship a God that, you know, likes to hack people's limbs off. And it's like, look, it's just not that simple. It's just not that silly either. I mean, the, you, you do get language here and you do get examples that there's a case by case, you know, sort of basis. And it's a little more thoughtful than it might, uh, you know, sort of appear on, on the surface. It's not, it, it is still hard for us to understand why different choices were made. We don't have a perfect understanding of this, but there are analogies where compensation was allowed to substitute for mutilation. And you do get that in the Old Testament law as well. So it's not this barbaric thing again, that people like to portray it as. Homicide, again, that was that was very severe. Blaspheming God, as we just read, that was a very severe punishment. There were, there were things, of course, that merited the death penalty. But when it came to this, this mutilation kind of thing, there was a lot of latitude there. And we get glimpses of that in the Old Testament. I want to switch gears here and go to Leviticus 25. And again, the, the big deal here is the land principle. Again, the whole... Uh, idea about sabbatical, you know, weeks, sabbatical years, the jubilee, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, let, let's just read. We'll, we'll, we'll jump in here. Well, let, let's start in verse three. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. Verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Hold that phrase. The Day of Atonement is connected to the Jubilee idea here. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee you shall return to his, each of you shall return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops, so on and so forth. Now, you say, well, what, what's the point with all this? Well, the key principle is actually is sort of summarized later on in verses 23 and 24, where we read, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. 
The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, says the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. The idea is that Canaan belonged to God, and he had granted it. He had you know, rented it. He had leased it to the Israelites as Hebrew term is an achuzah, which means and, and is translated elsewhere as something like tenured land or a land holding. The Israelites could not think of the land as sort of just inherently belonging to them. It inherently belonged to God. It was not theirs to do whatever they wanted to do to it. Okay, it could not be permanently, you know, sold or permanently, you know, given up. Israelite landowners, you know, when they had something happen and they had to sell their land, okay, maybe they they owed a lot of money or they had to, you know, do something with it uh, to to pay off a debt or whatever. No matter what they had to do, they retained the right to redeem that property because God had given it to them to, you know, we have the tribal allotments and then within the tribal allotments, you're going to have the exchange of land and whatnot. What, what, what this system is, is basically a system of reset. After so many years, things get restored to the original owner. Uh, people can go live in their original home, you know, if they've been alienated for some reason, maybe they had to indenture themselves or something like that. Land had to go back to the original owner. It was, it was sort of a, a reset reset button. And and the whole idea behind it was these relationships you create when it comes to the land, whether it's buying or selling or indenturing or mortgaging or lending or leasing, all of those are secondary because the real owner of the land is God and God is letting you lease it. He's letting you live here. Now, Levine says this, land tenure is at the heart of the chapter which does not provide for a moratorium on debts every seventh year, as does the law of Deuteronomy 15, nor does it require the release of indentured servants every seventh year, as Deuteronomy 15 Exodus 21 do. So we need to factor them in. Both of those chapters are primarily concerned with the alleviation of poverty. So Leviticus 25 is about teaching the idea of who owns the land. Part of that system gets applied in different ways, Deuteronomy 15 Exodus 21, with how to how how God, who is the ultimate landowner, wants the land used to care for the poor, wants the land used to alleviate you know situations of indentured servitude and and, and whatnot. So all of these chapters together, they're not they're not contradictory. They have to be taken together because there are different uh, situations to which the idea of God's ultimate ownership is applied. God is the one telling you, okay, since I'm letting you live here, uh, and, and we've, we're describing that here in Leviticus 25, okay, over here in these other passages, here, here's something else I want you to do with my land. This is how I want it handled. And so, again, we have to factor this in, into, the, um, you know, into the system. And if you think about it, you know, back in these days, most people made their living, their livelihood was linked to land. This is an agrarian culture. It's an agrarian society. Whether you were in debt or out of debt, whether you were poor or wealthy, ultimately, in 99.9% of the cases, depended on whether you held land or not, whether you could you know, live off that land or not. So when people had to borrow certain things or when they got into debt, when they had bad years, I mean, the, the, the fact that they were tied to land created both positive and negative situations. Uh, but again, what, what God is, is, is saying here is that, look, that's all well and good, 
but they're, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to tell you, according to certain cycles, at some given points in time, I want it reset. I want it to go back to the way it was at the beginning. Okay. People who no longer had land, they had to pledge it. They had to sell it off to pay debt or whatever. They're going to get that back. They're not going to continually be in a situation where they have nothing. Again, in an, in an agrarian culture, they're not going to be continually at the disadvantage. We're going to reset the system at certain points of time to avoid a cycle of poverty. And this was the whole idea. And God as the landowner is telling people, this is how I want it done. I don't want the abuse of fellow Israelites to happen. I, I, and I don't want this, again, cycle of poverty con to continue. And when you get down to, you, you read a little bit through this, through the whole thing, we didn't read the, the whole thing, but we need to say something about kind of conceptually, you know, beyond land maintenance, beyond teaching the one lesson of who owned the land. What's the bigger picture? What's the bigger theological picture? And there have been a lot of people who've addressed this. I'm going to quote from, from an article by a, a fellow whose last name is Kawashima. Uh, and I kind of like his, his summary here of, of his take on it. Again, it's not the only take, but it's, it's his take on it. So aside from land maintenance, alleviation of poverty, because oftentimes when you hear this passage taught, if you do, it, it sort of, it morphs into some social justice thing. And, and, and that's there. I mean, we just talked about it, but there's a, there's something bigger going on here, a bigger biblical theological thing to think about in all this. So here's what Kawashima says. And again, I, I just like his summary. Interpretations of the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25 have tended to read it through the lens of various historical issues how it fits into the legal historical context of the ancient Near East, its literary historical relationship to other biblical sources, other passages, and the historical background of ancient Israelite society. While these are undeniably important questions, they fail to address the meaning and function of the Jubilee year within the larger priestly cultic system of ritual and thought. Now, what he believes here is that the Jubilee year, continuing with what he says, the Jubilee year symbolizes and completes an atonement of socioeconomic pollution and you know, spiritual pollution because it's linked to the Day of Atonement. Uh, again, it, it, I'll just keep reading here. The priestly system of thought imagined Israel. I get this. Imagined Israel at the moment of its creation by divine fiat as an ideal correlation of people and land, a sacred order which, not unlike the organization of creation itself, as described in Genesis 1, must periodically be restored. In other words, what he's saying is that not only is this a reset to take care of things like poverty, but the land of Israel and the people of God, the land of Yahweh, the people of Yahweh, Yahweh gives his people the land to live on. And then they manage it and going throughout the cycles of life, people lose land, people gain land, you know, you have debt, you have poverty, you have wealth, all this kind of stuff that just happens in life. When it's reset in the Jubilee year, it's like going back to a utopia, going back to the utopia of Eden, the original creation. And what was the original creation? What was Eden? Okay, again, all, not all the earth is Eden. We know that. But but what was that perfected thing back in Genesis 1, this place we call Eden? The, it was the abode of God. Well, isn't that what Canaan is? Okay, Canaan is where Yahweh dwells. It, this is his land. So when we reset it, 
in again a very a very perfect very utopian sort of idea now everybody has land nobody's poor you know the land it, you know is mine and I, and I want it distributed it goes back to its original owner people can go back to their their original homestead and make a living and kickstart over and all that kind of stuff we reset everything to go to go back to this harmonious idea of God's people Yahweh's people living with him in his living space, in his abode, in his land. It's a mirror of Eden. It's an Edenic reset. It, the, the, the system is, as I talked about in Unseen Realm a lot, the system is designed to, to inform people that what's happening here in this place we call Israel, with these people we call Israelites, and their God who is Yahweh, the true God, the God of gods, the Most High, what's happening here is a restoration a resetting of Eden. This is the whole idea. This is the plan to kickstart Eden on earth. Again, I've, I've repeated this many times, you know, in the podcast and of course in Unseen Realm and uh, other sources, but this is always lurking in the background, the restoration of humans, God's family living with God in his living space, in his abode. It, it, it's right here in Leviticus 25. This is the bigger picture of the Jubilee reset. Kawashima continues, he says, the disruption or chaos, interesting term, caused by an Israelite's falling into slavery, you know, indentured servitude, or selling off his property is viewed as a form of pollution. It, it, it's, it's a perfect thing become corrupt. It's a utopian thing become corrupt. It, it mars the picture. It shouldn't be this way. It's, a, it's viewed as a form of pollution because people have been separated from their ancestral land compromising the nation's geopolitical order in order to eradicate the possibility of an irremediable pollution. The Jubilee year abolishes slavery and selling of land. One can only sell one's labor, Leviticus 25.40, or the crops of one's field, Leviticus 25.16, but not one's actual person or field, for both already belong to Yahweh. Whatever pollution does accrue, again, whatever corruption does accrue in the interim between Jubilee years is symbolically eliminated through the proclamation of liberty. Okay, we just read that word, you know, the people having liberty, being set free. Liberty is defined as returning home on the Day of Atonement, no less. (laughs) Leviticus 25.9. On the very day, think about this, on the very day, that the goat for Azazel, the scapegoat in some translations, carries away or disposes of the people's sins out into the wilderness. Remember in Eden, you know, originally in Eden, there was no sin. It's going to become corrupted because of rebellion. But again, on the very day that the goat goes out into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people away, the people and the land return to their original sacred distribution. Eden is restored. Again, it's a utopian reset. It's a back to Eden theme, again, which I've, I've belabored both here in the podcast and in Unseen Realm. Now, all of that, all that's Old Testament theology. <laughs> all that's good stuff. All that's Old Testament theology. Now, before we, we wrap up, I want to talk about two other things. What about how people thought about the Jubilee notion later on? You know, what, what about after the Old Testament period? You know, in the intertestamental period, the second temple period. What, what about how, how did people think about the Jubilee? 
uh, then because now we're under dominion of, you know, foreign powers, you know, the Romans or whoever. And, and of course, we have this, this spiritual sense of Deuteronomy 32 where, you know, the, the nations around us are, are under the dominion of other gods. And this is Yahweh's portion. And look at, look at our situation. You know, we, we know why we're here. We were sent into exile because we apostatized. This is why idolatry, disloyalty to Yahweh was linked to being in the land or not. It's as if dad, you know, Yahweh is saying, you don't want to live in my house. You don't want to honor me. Go live somewhere else. And, it, and they did. He sent them away. But again, it, it wasn't permanent. There was always this restorative idea. Well, when you're in this situation, the second temple period, how are people thinking about that? And that includes the New Testament. New Testament's part of the second temple period, time period. Now, most Bible students will know that Jesus was considered to be the eschatological or ultimate fulfillment of the Jubilee Liberty. And that's because of the episode in Luke 4, 16 through 19. I mean, if we go to Luke 4, 4, 16, this is the scene. Okay, Jesus goes into the synagogue at Nazareth. And in verse 17, it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. You know, he's, he's, he's there to read. Scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place. So he, 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 look, he, he finds it deliberately. Okay, he finds the place where it was written. Quote, this is verse 18 in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. (laughs) And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And again, we know the rest of the story, you know, how about how he's, you know, their reaction to this. They don't like it. Now, most Bible students will know that in that episode, when he quotes Isaiah 61, that Isaiah 61 is borrowing from Leviticus language, Leviticus 25, this, this whole idea of proclaiming liberty to the captives. Now, it's kind of interesting to see what, you know, how Luke is thinking about this. And again, again reflecting how Jesus was thinking about this. If you go to Isaiah 61, which is about the servant of the Lord, okay, the tasks are as follows. If you just stick with Isaiah 61, if you start there, tasks are to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to those who are bound. Fourth, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of his vengeance. Five, to comfort those who mourn. Now, in Luke, what Luke does with it, here are his tasks. They're, They're different. To bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty for the captives and sight to the blind, and that wasn't in Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, number four, to set the oppressed at liberty. So in other words, Luke omits the second and fourth tasks from Isaiah 61. He makes the third task a little shorter, and then he adds a new task, which was taken from Isaiah 58, uh, verse 6, this uh, idea of about, about oppression. Now, I'm not going to get into how those things are reconciled. A lot of it involves comparing the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and all that stuff. We're going to, we're going to skip all the technical stuff, and I'm going to ask two questions instead, because they're interesting questions. What were the people in Jesus' day, and presumably us, what are they liberated from? And second, what about skipping the day of the Lord language, okay, the judgment language? 
from Isaiah 61. Why did Jesus do that? Back to the first question, what, what are they liberated from? Now, most people would assume it's sin. It's their sins. Okay, that's true. But elsewhere in Luke, when Luke talks about liberation language, uh, when he uses uh, these, these terms, there's a, a bit of a different perspective. In the story, in Luke 13, for example, with the, uh, the woman the woman who has a disabling spirit for 18 years, she was bent over, couldn't straighten herself. Jesus sees her and he says, woman, you're freed from your disability. He lays his hands on her and then she stands up straight. And then the ruler of the synagogue has a cow. Again, the familiar story. Jesus says, uh, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Okay, this the loosing language here is is the same as the loosing language, the liberation language elsewhere, including Luke four, and of course going back to the Septuagint of Leviticus twenty five. And so a lot of a lot of scholars are saying, well, because it's Jesus, and because he's the Messiah, and because of of the implications of the cross, if we ask the question, what were people in Jesus' day liberated from? Yeah, it, it was their sins in a salvation sense. But it also speaks about the idea of the defeat of Satan and liberation from the captivity of a world held in bondage to spiritual forces of darkness. That is part of the picture. Now, that's going to become important because when you think about – think about the, the, what we talked about in Leviticus 25 with the Jubilee, that, that it's, a, it's a utopian reset. It's a reset of Eden. It's not just about poverty. It's not just about sin. It, it includes this idea, again, of, of spiritual bondage, you know, not, and not just referring to one's sins, but also referring to the defeat of Satan and, again, the dominion of the nations. Didn't Jesus come as the Messiah, as the liberator, as the resetter for the Gentile also? Well, if that's true, that links all of what we've been saying to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview the reclamation, the, re- the reclamation, the reclaiming of the nations, and the defeat of the spiritual powers who are in dominion over them. If you're going to reset the land, and by the way, since the church is the circumcision-neutral people of God, and the people of God are no longer bound to one geographical region, this thing we call Israel, or this thing we called Canaan, since now the people of God and the domain of God is the entire globe, To reset the globe, you have to reclaim the nations. You must defeat the powers that hold the nations in dominion. You have to defeat the the fallen sons of God. And this this is part of the picture of a Levitical, a Jubilee reset associated with the Messiah. It's a whole lot bigger than, again, some of these other things we've been talking about. Now, we, you know, the, the second thing. What, what about the judgment language? Because isn't this reclaiming of the nations idea? Isn't the, isn't the ultimate reset, the global reset, where, where, where the land of Yahweh is the world, and the people of Yahweh are all believers, Jew or Gentile, extracted from the nations held captive? Isn't, isn't that something that's going to happen at the end, at the end of the eschaton, with the day of the Lord, and then the second coming, and all, all this stuff? Yes, the answer to that is yes. But Jesus skips that part, the ultimate eschaton, the day of the Lord language. He skips that part when he, when he quotes Isaiah 61, because he knows how this is going to play out. He knows that what he's doing now, what he will do on the cross, okay, is the inauguration 
of all of that. It's not the consummation of the kingdom. It's not the, the, the ultimate reset back to Eden, but it begins it. It's the inauguration of all of this. So this language, again, that he skips, you know, this language of eschatological judgment is, again, a nod to the notion of the already but not yet notion of eschatology in the New Testament, of, of, of what the Messiah is doing. The ultimate retribution means the judgment of the nations. It means the restoration of the entire people of God from every tribe of Israel and from every nation held you know, under, under dominion by the, the forces of darkness, the fallen sons of God. To get a, a genuine jubilee fulfillment, it all has to come back. Everything has to be liberated. That means the powers have to be defeated. And you get this language in the New Testament. Again, I, I hate to keep going back to Unseen Realm, but we, you know, we talk, talk about this at length, that you get this language about Jesus being, you know, you know, conquering the powers and being seated at the right hand of God above all the principalities. Power. Okay, you know, Satan falling like lightning from heaven. It, it has all been put in motion and the motion will never cease. It is inexorable. It inches forward. On a, on a continuing, unstoppable basis, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the kingdom of God. Okay, the reset has begun. We are just waiting for it to cycle through. It cannot be stopped. So the, the, the whole Jubilee thing applied to New Testament theology, again, is very consistent with the inauguration of the kingdom and this already but not yet sort of thinking. Now, before we wrap up, what about... <laughs> What about that day of the Lord language? You know, Jesus, yeah, he goes into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll. He goes to Isaiah 61 and he skips things. <laughs> okay. Because again, he knows how this is going to play out. But there was a Jewish expectation prior to Jesus leading up to all this. Guess what? That included all of this that factored in a messianic appearance and an ultimate restoration, an ultimate jubilee, an ultimate reset. You actually find this in Second Temple texts. Like, uh, the one I'm going to take you to here is, is called 11Q Melchizedek. It's one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Cave 11. It's called 11Q Melchizedek for a reason. Melchizedek's mentioned. And guess what? Guess what? Melchizedek becomes analogous to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And that's no mistake. It's no, it, it, it's no accident. Now, I'm going to read you, I think you're going to be really surprised here, I'm going to read you 11Q Melchizedek, because not only will that passage quote Leviticus 25, because it's talking about the liberation from the captives and all that stuff, it's also going to quote, believe it or not, Psalm 82. So here's 11Q Melchizedek. This is column two. It says, and again, it's, it's fragmentary, but a lot of this is, is present. And as for what he said, and here he quotes Leviticus 25.13, in this year of Jubilee, you shall return, each one to his, his respective property. Concerning it, he said, he, now he quotes from Deuteronomy 15, which we alluded to a few minutes earlier. This is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he lent to his neighbor. He shall not coerce his neighbor or his brother, for it has been proclaimed a release for God. Here's its interpretation. That's actually in the line. Its interpretation. Pishro. Here's what they thought it meant. Line four, for the last days refers to the captives who, and then there's a gap in the text, and whose teachers who have been hidden and kept secret and from the inheritance of Melchizedek, and they are the inheritance of Melchizedek 
who will make them return, and liberty will be proclaimed to them to free them from the debt of all their iniquities. And this will happen in the first week of the Jubilee, which follows the nine Jubilees. And the Day of Atonement is the tenth Jubilee. Again, it's the cycle of 490 years. This should be familiar uh, for those who know Daniel 9. Again, they're thinking about this stuff. Line 8. This is the tenth Jubilee, in which atonement shall be made for all the sons of light and for the men of the lot of Melchizedek, according to all their works. For it is the time for the year of grace of Melchizedek and of his armies, the nation of the holy ones of God, of the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in the Songs of David. And here he quotes Psalm 82. Elohim will stand in the assembly of God. In the midst of the gods, he judges. Now, did you catch what, what he just, what they just did in that text? They linked the Jubilee cycle prophetically to be associated with a coming Messiah, a coming liberator figure who in some way is linked to Melchizedek, who is also the Elohim who judges the other Elohim in Psalm 82. That is a pre-Christian Jewish text among the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are tracking on a lot of the ideas, again, that that I've talked about in, in Unseen Realm, but it shows you that when Jesus comes along and you get certain New Testament writers that link these ideas to, okay, their audience is going to be able to process what is being said. They're going to be able to look at Jesus and identify what the truth claims are. They're, they're, this guy, and, and Jesus says, I mean, he quotes a thing, he puts the scroll away and sits down and says, this day, all of this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, when he says that, he, he's basically saying, I'm the Jubilee liberator. And in your tradition, you know what that means. So later on, when the writer of Hebrews, writing to, guess what? Hebrews links Jesus to Melchizedek. This is, it brings with it all these ideas. All these ideas are attached to these sorts of things. And so they had this notion that the Messiah was going to do these things. And, and the appearance of the Messiah would have to have something to do with, with the judging of the gods over the nations in Psalm 82 and the liberation. We're going to go back to our ancestral homes. It's going to be a reset. It's a back to Eden kind of thing. It's a restoration of the kingdom. Okay, all of those ideas are floating around in every reasonably educated Jew's head. And so that when Jesus says certain things, the New Testament writers write things, they can process the material. They are connecting the dots in their head. And again, it's, it's a little harder for us you know, to do that, but that's, again, the point of the podcast, it's the point of the book. And, and so, again, to bring this to a close, you know, we, it, it's legitimate. To read a passage like Leviticus 25, the Jubilee cycle, and, and presume, well, this has something to do with Messiah. And the way Jesus handles it is, well, yeah, all this stuff's been set in motion, but it's not quite here yet. The Jubilee cycle has not yet been completed. It will be completed when I return, because that's when we get the day of the Lord. That's when the nations are reclaimed. We're in the process now. Okay, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview applied in the New Testament, the book of Acts. Again, we spent a lot of time on that. It's up and running now. It's already here, but not yet. So again, these ideas are not just sort of idiosyncratic to me, okay, or to my book, or to the podcast, or whatever. This is the way 
an ancient person would have processed this kind of material. Wow, Mike, Leviticus 25. There you go. <laughs> Who knew? High five. <laughs> Who knew? Now, I, was, you know, I, I should mention, I, I didn't, I, I actually have uh, uploaded it to the podcast website. So if you want to link to this, you could, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tell people right now, uh, it, it's not going to be what uh, maybe some of you think it is. All of this, th- th- this Jubilee stuff, which links to Daniel 9, which of course is the 70 weeks of Daniel, all this kind of prophecy talk. People know how I feel about prophecy. I don't like any of the systems. But what scholars would call chrono-messiah talk, trying to figure out these cycles of time, connecting not, o- not only going with Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, but tying that into Jubilee stuff. That gets a bad name today because of a lot of the stuff on the internet that's just a few fries short of a happy meal, you know, that kind of thing. But there is legitimacy to the idea itself. And I have an article by a guy named Ben, Z- ben Zion Vockholder, who was one of the original, one of the, one of the two, two guys who originally brought the Dead Sea Scrolls to the public years ago because they, there, there was a time, believe it or not, when the normal person couldn't get access to them. He, the, he was a professor at uh, Hebrew University in, in uh, Cincinnati, mainstream uh, Hebrew scholar, Jewish scholar, and he has an article on just this topic. You know, how is this system legitimate and, and how might it work? Now, the reason I put the disclaimer on it is because if you think this is going to sound like left behind, <laughs> it's not. It's actually going to be a scholarly presentation of, okay, here are the things to think about. And here, here's what one biblical writer is – they're, they're quoting from this text over here. And he's going to show you the dots so you can put the pieces together if, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, you, can, you can download the article and read it. But this is not John Hagee. This is not, again, your popular presentation. What I'm saying is the idea – you know, this is not blood moon nonsense, okay? But the idea of these sorts of cycles playing a role in messianic prophecy is legit. It's just how good is our work when it comes to handling the text. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, by all means, check out the article. Give it a read. Again, wow, Leviticus 25. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, Jubilee, wouldn't that be great if we could practice that today? Yeah. Yeah, it uh it 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 sets your imagination off. You know, what would you know, to be honest, hey, let, let's just be blunt. If the church, if the early church was thinking again of itself as this reset community and they had all things in common. I mean, you, you, we don't we don't see Acts chapter 2 for instance quote Leviticus 25, but the notion of restoration and making sure that you know, people were not left in poverty. All, all these, all these big ideas, and and functioning just like the original people of God would have in Eden, had we not gotten into this mess. All of that would have been looked at, um, at by the early church approvingly, because that's what we're supposed to do. So, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. it be nice? It's a great system, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jubilee. I mean, I've seen the Las Vegas show Jubilee, but that's not. <laughs> Yeah. But for those of you that have not, please do not Google that. Although I guess it would be appropriate for the naked Bible name, but no, we're, we're going to, we're, we're going to leave your past out of the podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I didn't say I was in the show. Okay. Well, I'm just, I'm just, 
creating some distance there. Uh, okay. <laughs> some appropriate distance. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that's a good, this is a good show. That was really good. All right, Mike. Well, uh, do you have any updates that you would like to discuss briefly here before we wrap up? I would say in, in broadest terms, um, keep, Keep your eyes on the blog. I hope to, at the end of the month, the end of January, uh, provide an update on some of the things that are happening as far as the progress of getting the clot up and running. And if you're not familiar with that term, uh, go to my website and you could use the search engine and just put in a word like obstacles or opportunities and you'll come up to my December 22nd post about looking ahead into 2016 and that will tell you what I mean. But for those of you who do know, I hope to post an update by the end of the month just so that you know what what's going on behind the scenes. And next week, we're going to finish up Leviticus. Yep. Yep. The last last couple chapters. And again, send me any questions that you have specifically about Leviticus so we could get them in on that Q&A. And um, if you have any ideas on how we could jumpstart Jubilee again, let me know. <laughs> but uh, just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. 